I'm Brandon Dawson, and this is The Distiller. Now, normally we just cut right to the interview, but this week I wanted to set the scene a little bit. My guest this week is Stephen Johnson Grove. Stephen is a public policy attorney and a professional do-gooder with the Ohio Justice and Policy Center. Stephen and I met at Second Sight Spirits in Ludlow, Kentucky, where founders Karis Wagner and Rick Couch welcomed us in, showed us around, and served us the absolute best hot buttered rum I've ever tasted while we spoke. Karis and Rick met in high school. They got degrees in mechanical engineering and industrial design, and they ended up working for Cirque du Soleil in Las Vegas before deciding old Kentucky was the place they ought to be and uh, moved back to open a craft distillery. And we are happy about that. We have links to Second Sight's Facebook page and website on our website, and we have the hot buttered rum recipe. Seriously, check it out. Now, sometimes these discussions are about the nuts and bolts, what you do every day and how you do it. Unsurprisingly, our conversation with Stephen Johnson Grove was a little more philosophical. After all, he's a public policy attorney. His work is about the why questions. I found it inspiring and challenging, and I was honored and humbled to get the chance to learn from Stephen's perspective. As you'll hear, we talked a lot about a lot of resources, from the Black Lives Matter syllabus to James Baldwin and ta Coates, to the legislation Stephen's currently working on to reduce the prison population in the state of Ohio. I'd encourage you, check out this episode at thedistillerpodcast.com for links to all of that stuff. It's well worth it. So without further ado, here you go. Episode five of The Distiller with Stephen Johnson Grove. So I said your, t- your official title is you're the deputy director for policy at the Ohio Justice and Policy Center. Mm-hmm. What do you do for a living? Uh, I cause trouble. I, um, an agitator? To, I am an agitator, a boat rocker, a troublemaker. I um, uh, am trying to change the law and maybe at some level the culture of how the criminal justice system operates primarily in Ohio. Okay. You're a lawyer. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of the, the baseline. You're yeah. a lawyer who's advocating for changes of the law and criminal justice policy. That's right. Um, what's your background? Tell us a little bit about sort of education and um, maybe how you, how you came into this. The real short version, just the arc of career from, uh, obviously you went to law school and yeah. then what, how do you get to where you are? Yeah. I went to law school in Temple in Philadelphia, Uh, got a gig right after that, a fellowship sort of thing to work with um, homeless people in Philly. I worked at the Homeless Advocacy Project there. Uh, At that time, I was helping um, homeless veterans uh, get their benefits. Uh, Very, uh, I don't know, technical, uh, legal technician, sort of like one by one solving a problem for an individual person who's suffering, you know, and homeless and, you know, dealing with PTSD for decades uh, and trying to get them some benefits. Uh, Good work, still going on in Philadelphia, that project. Okay. Um, And at some point I got dissatisfied with the um, uh, individual help and one by one by one stuff. I wanted to do more policy work, but it took a long time for me to find my way. I ended up in Cincinnati. It's a long story. And um, uh, fell into this job with a particular um, fellow named David Singleton. He's uh-huh. the executive director of the Ohio Justice and Policy Center. And um, kind of hard-hitting, far-thinking, big-picture policy change is like he wants to go as far and as brave and as fearless as he can all the time. So it created an avenue for me to do that. And I've been doing kind of growing that work for the last, oh, I, I guess I've been there 12 years. Okay. Let's take two seconds. Karis just served us up these hot yes. buttered rums. Oh, Cheers. Lord. Yes. Thanks for uh, joining us on the distiller. Indeed. Thank you, Karis. Wow. Mm. Boy, that's, 
whenever you're listening to this, um, it is uh, early December in Ludlow, Kentucky. It's about 21 degrees outside, and this is the absolute perfect thing. I feel like I could drink a bunch of these. Especially if you just rode your bicycle a few miles to get here and your toes are still freezing. <laughs> yeah. We won't say uh, who did that. Karis, thank you so much. These are absolutely delicious. Oh, no worries. Please enjoy. Great, great stuff. And we will put the recipe for these uh, on the website at thedistillerpodcast.com and uh, more information there as well about Second Sight Distillery uh, and everything they're doing on the website. So check all that out. Mm-hmm. So Stephen, um, a lot of people wind their way to the things that they end mm, up doing. Indeed. Um, people have degrees in industrial design and end up starting distilleries in Northern Kentucky. Yes. Um, I think of you as a person who, who had a plan and a mission <laughs> and you scoff at, no, that's, that's why I want to ask you this question is because you scoff at it. Even as I start to ask you about it, did you know early on, did you know when you went to law school how did your career take the shape that it went? Did you know that you wanted to be involved in shaping public policy or was it something that morphed over time? And, and how? Tell us a, you know, how you ended up doing what you're doing. Um, the decisions that you made along the yeah, way. Yeah, the only s- kind of central thing that maybe was the, the mission or the driving thing was like, I want to blow this thing up. And it started with the, the this, what, this mm-hmm. thing was... Um, I, Maybe got pretty clear right before law school. I lived in North Philadelphia, mm-hmm. and I lived and worked in a community up there. At that point, it was a faith-based kind of thing. I was working with a church uh, in North Philly in a place it's called Kensington, um, pejoratively referred to by ABC News at the time as the Badlands. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it was a you know a, a primarily Puerto Rican and Dominican neighborhood. Uh, it, there was a lot of drug trafficking going on there. It was very low income, and the 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 police were an occupying force and the court system was a, was a hammer and that's all it was. Mm. Um, there was no attempt. Thank God so much has changed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. I, I haven't been to North Philly in depth, you know, anytime recently. So to know, but I, I, yeah, I, I know that the judge, well, in any event, it anyway, was bad news. Uh, so that uh, revealed to me a lot about how crooked and oppressive the whole cr- the criminal justice system was. Um, I had had some classes in undergrad that sort of, you know, were awakening me to that fact and, and race as a layer to that. Um, uh, and so my skill set sort of gravitated towards law and politics. And so I wanted to, after this experience of this year of like kind of living in this neighborhood, working, I volunteered at the local, actually at the local police station when they were doing arraignments, I was mm. helping crime victims uh, deal with uh, the chaos of the system because the prosecutor usually didn't have time to. Um, and it was just very clear, like this wasn't working really for anyone, <laughs> not the victims, not the people in the neighborhood. Every, people wanted to be safe, but nothing about what was going on there was safe, uh, for anybody, not the, uh, yeah, it was just not. So, um, so I, uh, that was the, that driving, uh, thing. Uh, and, and around that same time I had, or soon thereafter, I participated in a, um, uh, an intensive weekend race, anti-racism training. It was like critical race theory for those of you who are into the academic side of this. Uh, critical race theory as applied to like church membership. <laughs> it was uh, an interesting thing. 
uh, and run by Mennonites, of all things, which you mm. maybe, uh, the, the unexperienced uh, listener may th- be thinking of doilies and, you know, long beards and, I, I am. Uh, <laughs> and, and horses. Uh, not these Mennonites uh, in urban Philadelphia. In any event, uh, that um, intensive anti-racism weekend, which really wake, awakened me to consciousness about what whiteness is, uh, made it, it deeply personal. Like once, so there was the external part, like this criminal justice system is screwed up. Race has a big part to do with it. Safety is not happening. It's just punishment and pain happening on like on top one on top of each other. So that's the external consciousness. And then the internal part is like, wow, my own whiteness is a big problem here. Mm-hmm. Um, so if that nucleus has been driving me uh, for, I don't know, 15, 20 years. Where did the original, I mean, you learned that because you were involved in the training that you were doing and the volunteering that you were doing, but you were already doing the training and the volunteering. There was a, there was an orientation that came from somewhere that got you into those at the start. Was that, that come from your family? Did that come from your faith? Like where? Yeah. Cause well, you could have, you could have just as easily gone to temple, got a law degree in almost any other specialty and never touched all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where did the original orientation toward that yeah. come from? Yeah. So, I mean, that's why I went to temple it was basically, I took this year off, had done this volunteer work and then it was like, okay, the reason I'm going to law school is for one reason is to help mm. this situation and be useful in this situation in some kind of way. So before that, um, I had some mixture of, um, a couple things. Uh, my mom was always like a super kind of give back kind of sort of person. She started her own nonprofit herself, mm. it, uh, to help homebound seniors who deliver meals, kind of a meals on wheels sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad was just perpetually cantankerous and, you know, critiquing everything all the time. <laughs> so it just kind of gave me an orientation around like asking hard questions about everything. Um, and then, uh, I have an older brother, uh, who's has cerebral palsy, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, he's quadriplegic and there's just something about growing up as the younger brother, seeing the disadvantages he faced, the unfairness he faced from all kinds of quarters, um, and um, uh, I don't know if you need to bleep this out, but it's just like I had this like thing inside me that's always like back the fuck off. Like mm-hmm. I just always want to say that to somebody for somebody else. Like yeah. that's, and I think it comes from my relationship with my brother. Like I want to stand up in front of him and in between somebody else and be like back the fuck off. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it's like to see all of those influences come together into what you do. Now, and there were times, I think I had known you for a little while before I ever really saw you work. Um, I remember here in Cincinnati, there was an event at the No Theater, and I don't even remember what the event was, but mm-hmm. I saw you get up in front of a group of people. Mm. And this is this guy, Stephen, that I've known for a while, who's a jovial character, who, you know, step into this persona that you occupied 100% of an authoritative voice for social change that was inspiring to people it was interesting to see you sort of put on that robe for a second. How, how does the orientation, how does what you do for a living, how does the weight of the things that you're thinking about every day in your, in your job influence who you are in your day-to-day life with your family, with your daughters? Um, how does it, uh, does it, I mean, are they kind of separate? No, I mean, I talk, my, my daughters are very aware more and more. I have one daughter who is, 14 and one who's 10 and they are more and more conscious of that especially the teenager um the, no both uh, both really are and they they'll draw me pictures about daddy got somebody out of jail today and there's all this little <laughs> little picture about it um so uh, there's some hilarious pictures of this um 
But my older daughter, now she's you know, a teenager, has this, you know, you can just see as a teenager's consciousness sort of opens up into the enveloping larger perspectives of the world. Uh, like when she really puts her foot down about something that she feels is not right, you mm-hmm. know. Um, so that's exciting to see. So it's like kind of seeped into her consciousness, like she's chosen to be a vegetarian, right? And mm-hmm. Which I am not. Uh, and it, when she decided that, like, I was like, all right, like there taking you go. There, there's you taking the stand and sort of the energy by which she brought that on um, was uh, made me feel like something is passing through osmosis there. Has she talked at all about what she might like to do? Is she like, is it the kind of thing where she's thinking about following your in your footsteps no. or is it too early to talk about? Oh, this too stuff? early. Yeah, no, not at all. She, I, I, I joked about law school even just like as a, as a funny joke and she's like, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> not so much. But I don't know what she might do. Who knows? Um, so we talked in a broad sense about what you do. Um, what are you working on right now? Give people a specific um, indication of sort of how you're spending your days. And mm-hmm. I'm, interested in, I'm interested in two answers to that question. I'm, I'm interested, number one, in what the literal problems are that you're trying to solve. Yeah. Um, local, regional, national. Yeah. And then I'm also interested in, I love to just ask people who do something that not everybody has a frame of reference for, what do yeah. your days look like? Yeah. How do you, yeah. what happens when you go to work? Yeah. So yeah. maybe take those in order. Okay. So the, uh, and I will do my best to not get in the weeds on this. You can, um, we can edit you out. Can ask get, it, get us in the weeds uh, as well, you want. Yeah, or you can pull me further if I'm not going deep enough. But sure. uh, my job right now is narrowed down to one very, one single very big project, which is to propose a ballot initiative in Ohio uh, that is uh, putting something on the actual ballot, like a law change. It will mm-hmm. be in the Ohio State Constitution. And the target of that thing is to safely shrink the prison population and reinvest money in things that make people more healthy. That's basically the driving force. Um, the the deep, go one layer deeper. Uh, the um, technical part. The, so our ballot initiative would basically divert people from prison uh, safely. We've done a very careful look using lots of data analysis. What's driving people into prison, and how can we kind of cut out certain slices of people that are going to prison uh, for drug possession, uh, for violating probation, not not new crimes, but just like technical rule violations. Mm-hmm. And also for people that are currently in prison, how do we uh, increase their ability to earn credit, uh, earn time off their sentence? So these three things, preventing drug addiction from landing you in prison, uh, preventing technical probation violations from landing you in prison, and for people that are already in prison to earn, you know, to incentivize and earn time off their credit. These three things will actually, the way we've designed them, will pretty significantly drop the prison population. Mm-hmm. We have a formula for capturing that money so they don't spend it all on tax credits, and uh, we will mandate that that money must be spent on drug treatment mm-hmm. and on um, uh, services, uh, trauma recovery for crime survivors. Okay. Um, so that, that's kind of the the idea. It's very, uh, it's been a lot of long time coming, but it's a big project. The, the idea will, will be to you know get this money out of the, get the money out of cages and get people out of cages and put more resources and people into healing oriented stuff. In that work, are you um, are you fighting against inertia and infrastructure, or are you fighting against an actual point of view that completely disagrees? Uh, with the direction that you're headed? Yes. Uh, <laughs> that is um, uh, our you know, evidence-based, experience-based analysis of the criminal justice system is it is um, thoroughly baked with 
racism. Like that's how it's structured. Mm -hmm. um, there are ample historical uh, threads one can trace to elements of the criminal justice system from police to prison, probation, parole, prisons, jails, judges, every aspect of the criminal justice system is shot through with a long history of racial disparity and explicit racial bias uh, in the North as well as the South. Uh, and that's really important to say because sometimes people get this mm -hmm. blinded view of that. Um, and so uh, every, the, everyone I work with uh, is seeing the mass incarceration system, the mass criminalization system as the inherit, you know, the uh, inheritance the of slavery. Privatization of that, of that prison yeah, system. Yeah, and proven privatization is, is, a, is an important part of that, although it's, that's a small thing in Ohio, relatively speaking. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it is a terrible evil, and it grabs everybody's attention. But it, the, the normal public system ain't, ain't that great either. Yeah. It's yep. really bad. Um, so we're trying to... The, and when you asked, uh, is it a, uh, a perspective or something? Yes, it's, it, it is the belief. And this goes all the way to like foundational perspectives on like how we raise our kids. Uh, that punishing someone will make them better. That mm -hmm. putting them in a cage will make us safer. Uh, you know, for all you parents listening, think about your timeout practices. Uh, sorry, that's just, it's just in a totally irrelevant. Careful, so careful. I'm, I'm just going far scare field. Away all I'm of way, our listeners. We're already controversial. I'm enough. way outside my expertise range. <laughs> way outside. Um, so anyway, uh, that's what I'm going at here with this. Um, you know, tackling this um, prison problem. Um, to what degree? I don't know how to answer uh, to ask you this without it being sort of uh, depressing. That's a lot. It's a lot to take on. Um, I guess two questions are: Do you feel like you're fighting a battle that you can win? What are the incremental victories? What are you seeing? And then how do you, especially with everything that's going on today, and I don't even know where to start. Like, um, how do you continually, as a person who's fighting for good in the world? in a world that seems to have so much darkness, like how do you keep going? How do you uh -huh. keep pushing forward? That's a, yeah. that's a big question. I don't mean yeah, it yeah. to be depressing, but I'm interested in just their philosophical approach to all that. Sure. Sure. So, well, you asked like kind of the technical, like how do we win something tech, you know, practical and incremental and, and then the big picture. So I'll, let me take that in pieces. One, I'm just like totally loving the, the, um, logo of Second Sight because that's going to be really relevant right now. The, if you haven't seen it, uh, you will when you get to the website. Uh, there's these two circles that interlock. So it's a really basic Venn diagram, right? There's like the circle and the circle and then the intersection point. So what we did, so the technical part, the, like the part I'm proud about because I'm a lawyer and I did this stuff, uh -huh. is we basically looked at what are all the things that are driving the Ohio prison population. And again, we, we made a choice. We're in Ohio. We're going to pick the state's prison population. So if we're looking at the state prison population, what does the data say is driving people in there? And what are all the things we could do that could, you know, levers we could pull legal policy-wise that would change that. So we came up with a few dozen things. Then we polled it. I mean, if you're going to win, you got to poll. So we had, thankfully, resources through some national partners to run a poll to tell us what would Ohio voters buy. Uh, you know, not everybody's nearly as, you know, steeped in this stuff as I am. Or is How far would they go? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Which of these things do they like? Yeah. Uh, would they actually vote for? And we basically took, you know, A and B and found this, the intersection point of like, here's all the things that will shrink the prison population. Here's what people will do like. Um, and we put those, bake those into the ballot. That's the three things that I told you would shrink the prison yep. population earlier. And then what sweetens the pot for everybody is when we tell them, and we'll take all that money and we'll put it in something that makes your family healthier. Right. And your family safer. 
when uh, are likely, uh, how do people find out about what you're doing right now? Can they, can they see these things and when are they likely to see yeah. it on the ballot? How uh, can they research and learn more about what you're doing? Yeah, right now it's, uh, it's not secret, but it's not like we don't have a website yet because uh, there's a lot of s these hur big, big hurdles you have to get through. Like you have to submit your language to the attorney general. It's public record now and I could certainly send it to anyone. I could give it to you to post on your website. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, if, you, if you would, I will. Okay. Uh, so that's available. And then, um, uh, but it has to clear the attorney general and secretary of state, da, da, da. And then you have to collect signatures. So then okay. what that'll be when it's really, really public. We're going to launch on uh, January 28th, 2018, okay. because that is the day when uh, President Nixon first uttered the phrase war on drugs publicly. Oh. Mm -hmm. And so we, and it was uh, in 19, I want to uh, say 77, I think. Um, I could be wrong about that, but someone told me that. So if that's true, then in its, uh, excuse me, yeah, 1977, 1978, could have been, um, no, that would have been, that would have been Carter. So I don't know exactly when it was, but it was some years, you know, and basically we're coming up on that anniversary right. in 2018. And so it'll be a great time for us to say we're basically reversing this war on drugs, which has been a blithering failure. Wow. And people are going to see that in, in the form of a ballot initiative. That's right. So it'll be on the Ohio, if you're an Ohio voter, you're going to see it. No one else is going to see that. Okay. Fantastic. So yeah, if you will um, send us whatever you want, we'll put it on the website yes. if people want to learn more about it. And, and we have to collect a half a million signatures of Ohio voters in 44 counties. So if you're anywhere out there in the hinterlands or, or urban areas of Ohio, uh, ask me and I'll give uh, you a clipboard. You know, if every listener to the Distiller podcast, you know, signs up, then we should get you. Well, good. Not even a, a hundredth of the way there. That's great. <laughs> Thanks. Um, uh Let's go back to you and what you do for, for work. Um, yeah. This is a podcast about the, the soul of work. Um, is this your life's work? Um, is this where you're headed? Um, what's the arc for you? Yeah. Do you, do you uh, sort of plan that this is going to be what you continue to work with? Or do you have aspirations or dreams or, or hopes of doing something else? So uh, the, the thing that's my life's work is to be cured of the addiction of whiteness. Um, whiteness is heroin. It is worse than heroin, and it infects all y'all that are listening to this. Even if you're a person of color, of course, you know that you've been affected by white supremacy and uh, and the internalized oppression. But for that, that's less of my business to tell you about. For all the white people listening, uh, I'm here to tell you you're sick. Uh, that you're. Uh, infected with this uh, perspective that um, it's really strange uh, because the sickness is to be told that you're excellent and normal all the time. Um, and the way that screws you up is that you realize you're not. You're not normal. You're not excellent. You screw up. You're kind of mediocre. You, you make mistakes. You, you, you hurt people. Uh, but every system around you keeps telling you you're fine and like keep going and do a little bit more of that. And so you're just like having this kind of schizophrenic uh, dis dissonance between like every system, bank, banking, economics, employment, education, uh, faith, religion, everything, everything, everything is telling you you're the normal one. And um, that's a insane burden to carry and it will really screw you up as it has screwed me up and it takes a while to sort of realize that that's why you're having the problems you're having uh Franz Fanon was an amazing writer and I encourage everyone to read him 
Uh, but one, and I, and I don't purport to be an expert at all, but one thing that I appreciate from Franz Fanon and others is to realize that like all the psychotherapy we put ourselves through only gets you so far if you, unless you like grapple with like the social structures that are creating your psychological problems. Mm-hmm. So you can't talk therapy your way out of whiteness. Uh, you have to get engaged in deep transformative social change, even if it like feels like uh, enormous and unlikely to win and all that stuff. Like that's the only way you get better is to actually have one real relationships with diverse people, mm-hmm. uh, especially, uh, you know, to reverse the sickness, which is like whiteness is the norm and the good and the excellent and the top and the center and the lead and always in charge. And then by, you know, analogy, black is always the opposite. It is the bottom. It is the, uh, it is the marginal. It is the, the wrong. Mm-hmm. It is the bad. Like that, that lie, we eat, sleep, drink, and breathe everywhere we go every day. And so like f- walking upstream against that uh, is the only way to get healed. And you can't do that privately. I mean, you need to do private work. You need to read and, and think. You know, you can't go around just asking everybody, like, what do I do? What do I do? Uh, but, like, that's, that's – so that's my life work. Uh, and it just l- takes the form of a lawyer working on a ballot initiative in Ohio. Yep. Good Lord. Um, yeah, put that in your pipe and smoke it. No, thank you for that. It's like you, you went deep, which is wonderful. If people are, are listening to this, you know, there's some people that are listening to this and they're like, <clears throat> oh, that guy's full of shit and I, they've turned off already for the rest of us what do we do what do you yeah. read you, um, where do you start if somebody's yeah. listening to this and they're like I've been aware of this but I don't know what I don't know mm-hmm. how do I educate myself you already talked yeah. about um, cultivate relationships with a diverse community of people get yourself out of your white bubble yeah what else what do you read yeah. what do you read where do you go what do you attend yeah yeah, um, yeah, give yeah. me your reading list well yeah I mean there's uh, and then I will provide you some links so I mean uh you know, you could start with um, uh, Frederick Douglass or Sojourner Truth. Uh, Frederick Douglass has a great... President ass- Trump's a big fan of Frederick Douglass. Yeah, he thinks he's I, doing I, fantastic work. He is doing... You know that Frederick? He's doing <laughs> such good work. He wrote this great essay. It's called The Meaning of the Fourth of July for the Negro. Um, and, you know, I say that, you know, with the historical context of why he used that phrase, Negro. Yeah. But um, great essay. Read it, and read it on the Fourth of July, especially. Um, uh, you know about the hell that um, white America had put people of color through, black people through, and continued to do, uh, and, and still had these pageants and parades and stuff, and still to this day do the exact same mm-hmm. thing. So that's a, great, that's a great read, you know, historical. And then, you know, just move forward. So Black Lives Matter, there's a great, in fact, you can just Google this, Black Lives Matter syllabus, just do that. And mm-hmm. then you'll find the Black Lives Matter syllabus, which is a professor who's put together a whole host of readings. Actually, I think he's an NYU professor, and he updates his syllabus publicly nice. each semester. And so he has like shows, like here's the videos and t- movies I'm having my class watch here, the books I have them read. Um, so that's great. That's just, you know, there you go. Um, there are a few others, um, that I could point you to like great lists of yeah. books. Um, uh, John, uh, the, the other one that's, um, coming to my mind is James Baldwin. Like I would yep. just highly encourage people to read James Baldwin. Yep. Um, stunning in that here's a guy that is like relentlessly merciless about, how sick white people are and he can see it so clearly and he's so loving like he's both merciless and loving at the same time he's an that amazing reminds guy. me of like Ta-Nehisi Coates the stuff that yes. I've read of and his then, and the things and that I've heard him exactly and yeah. Ta-Nehisi Coates is, is contemporary exactly yeah, yeah. Um, part of what you said reminds me um, in 1998 I was in South Africa for a brief period of time 
And it was four or five years after the end of apartheid. And, and at that point, the nation was still pretty in the pretty early stages of grappling with what it meant to try to take an infrastructure that was designed to care for 3 million people and make it care for 20 million people. And they're still doing so. Um, one of the things that I think we don't think about when we think about what fighting for racial equality in this country means is that it will come at a cost mm -hmm. if it, it, to white people. Mm -hmm. that, that people, white people like myself, who say, well, oh, I'm not a racist. Of course I want everybody. Mm -hmm. Am I prepared to actually see my quality of life decrease, my, mm -hmm. ac my access to social services decrease, because that's what it takes in order to equal things out, let alone the concept and the discussion of, of reparations, you know, talk about that a little bit, like what you think is likely, what it is likely to take in the white experience mm -hmm. to move towards something that actually even, even harkens toward equality. Yeah. What it'll cost is your whiteness. That's what it's going to cost. And that's the thing that's going to hurt the most. It's going to cost your belief that you're white, Yeah, that you're, and, and uh, I mean, James Baldwin's quote is very simple and straightforward. Uh, the innocence is the crime. So to be white is to be innocent, is to be like, I just didn't realize that yeah. you were having this experience. The luxury of not knowing. Right, the luxury of not knowing. And so that, uh, to, and it is uh, the gift of actually knowing what other human beings are experiencing for real in the world. Like the misery that you're feeling deeply underneath your whole life has to do with the delusion that you have uh, that you are apart from the suffering of other people mm -hmm. and that you don't have to see it. You don't even have to know that it exists and all that. So tapping into that for real uh, hurts quite a lot for a while and may continue to hurt, but it's uh, a gift of hurt in the sense of like, oh, well now I really know what the world is like and what real other human beings. And then you have this, this possibility of really knowing other people like they're actually brothers and sisters, like mm -hmm. that they're actually fellow human beings that are just like you. Um, that you can have real relationships. Um, it takes a while to get there because you get got to cut through so many layers of crap that you're sort of carrying in your head. Um, it doesn't happen right away. Uh, yeah, so at a social, I can't, I'm not, uh, you know, that's funny you say, the future. I'm looking up here at <laughs> Zoltar himself, uh, and you all, for the people that remember the movie Big, that's the, uh, the, 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 the uh, trope of this current room we're sitting in, is the Zoltar machine. Uh, so I can't, pro you know, totally forecast the future of exactly, like, this is how it's going to go down. Yeah. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not the prophet. Um, uh, but yeah, there's going to have to be some giving up of concrete Real little things. things. It's yeah, not going to be. It's not going to be just an easy switch of mindset. Right. 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 And but unless we do it, like the whole thing goes down in flames. I guess is what I'm saying. Is yeah. like um, the whole ruse will be up um, as from a, just a purely class and economic context. The guy, what was his, I don't know, some billionaire from Facebook land was talking about like the pitchforks are coming. Right. I've seen that post. Like right, uh, right. Yeah. The pitchforks are coming, and so unless we meaningfully grapple with dismantling the lie of whiteness, uh, the pitchforks are coming. What does um, your own whiteness mean in how you do your work? Well, yeah, it's a, it's a constant challenge. Um, I mean, to be, a, to be a 
white male white guy, yep. you know, advocating for racial equality. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well educated. All that. It means, uh, you know, I, I get checked a lot, <laughs> uh, which Do you is a gift. Talk, I mean, talk about that. Oh, yeah, sure. I've got like lots. It's one of... thing to say that. I have a feeling that that actually equals like real confrontation in your life that you have to yeah. deal with. Oh, absolutely. And that's the, you know, uh, I just keep putting myself, I don't know, this, is, this has become a bit of a hackneyed phrase, but, you know, get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's a big part of it, uh, is being comfortable with uh, continually putting yourself where you're genuinely trying to give and do the best work you can to break the system uh, that's oppressing people and being strategic about that, which means not necessarily just talking about big picture philosophy stuff, but like really like a valid initiative, you know, doing something concrete on the ground that's going to work. But it it means that like my instinct for being in charge, for leading the conversation, for correcting people or saying the way it should be, uh, is so natural and normal, and I, you know, it p- creeps up in every all kinds of group contexts, and people will be like, you know, put their hand up and say, just just hold easy. on a minute, easy <laughs> yeah, tiger, easy, easy tiger. Yeah. Uh, you need to listen, um, and um, and sometimes it's more forceful than that, depending on how f- off base I've been, uh, but yeah, I get the easy tiger thing more than once, uh, <laughs> more than once a week. Is that does that change over time? You've been doing this now for. How long have you been at the Ohio Justice and Policy Center? Yeah, I've been there for 12 years. And as I said, some of this like internally started before that, but yeah. How has your, in light of that, uh, how mm-hmm. has your approach to this changed over time? How have you grown into who you are now? Um, it, uh, you know, one, receiving the corrections when they come, uh, being alert to when it's hap- when other people are doing it. I'm like, you know, I can see when another white person, especially a white guy, is doing the white guy thing and be like, and I sometimes I'll pull him aside and be like, bro, you need to, <laughs> you need to, you, you don't realize you are pissing everyone off in this room uh, because you're just like leaking this crap all over the place. Um, uh, but uh, over time, you know, maybe I've gotten a little better at it um, and, and better at receiving the correction. Uh, you know, re- relapse is part of recovery, as they say in, mm-hmm. in, in uh, AA and NA. Uh, so <laughs> it's, it's true with whiteness, too. Um, so just knowing, you know, being at least, uh, not expecting myself to not have relapses, but at least being able to know, like, that's a relapse. <laughs> like, there, there it is. Uh, being able to name it and not mm-hmm. saying, like, oh, that's just normal. Um, that's a certain big part of it. Um, I, I feel like I've wandered off your question now, but no, go ahead. That's all part of it. Talk about, you talked about some of the stuff you're, you're fighting for now and big goals. Yeah. Uh, but you've had some successes along the way. Mm-hmm. Talk about those. Yeah, sure. Um, big, I mean, when I started at the Ohio Justice Policy Center, my job was to uh, build up our outreach legal clinics. Um, we um, uh, had just started in 2005 or just early, to, late 2004, these outreach legal clinics to help people with criminal records. Com- formerly incarcerated people or just people who never spend time in prison, but you know, they have a criminal record and they can't get back on their feet. So over the years we built up and I personally helped built up this body of legal clinics around greater Cincinnati. It was very locally based um, at uh, the food bank. And uh, we did one at a church for a while and we've done them at community centers and other places. And we still do them to this day. Uh, and that work I sort of helped build up. And then uh, out of that uh, was able to get an expertise in like, well, these are all, when, when people come to my legal clinics, the hundreds of people that came every year came and said, you know, I want to get my record expunged, mm-hmm. but they couldn't. 
and so understanding expungement law and how that needed to change. And then thinking about other models for like how to remove barriers for people with criminal records safely and responsibly. Um, figuring that, you know, kind of cracking that nut. So I did tons of research. And so that kind of grew into the policy work. That's how I became a policy advocate is like from doing the individual legal work one by one by one. Uh, we ended up winning state law in 2012 uh, that created something. It's got a terribly wonky lawyer sounding name, a certificate of qualification for employment. But oh, that's, that's sexy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Somebody's got some branding mojo there. Um, <laughs> Uh, it, it was, you know, removed. It basically is a legal tool again. It's based in Ohio. Mm-hmm. It removes barriers for people with criminal records. Since then, I've done other things like we won statewide legislation to um, ban the box. It's, uh, that's got a better ring to it, I it must does. say. Uh, ban the box. You got some is, marketing help. Yeah, there. that got yeah, somebody, We got better. Uh, ban the box is a movement across the country started by others, by actually led by formerly incarcerated people in Oakland who started that. Um, uh, all of us or, or none is a great group. And they brainchild this thing many, many years ago. And it's the model of uh, removing the question from a job application that says, have you been mm-hmm. convicted of? Yep. That checkbox, the box that basically takes those body of, of job applications and puts them in the trash. So we ban the box in Ohio for public employment. For any government job in, this, in the state of Ohio, uh, there is no longer a question, have you been convicted of? And actually that applies now to local governments too. Um, so that was a big, big win. Is that something people can still ask as employers? Is that private employers absolutely can? Okay. Uh, we, pers- we we do a lot of advocacy and ed- public education, uh, mm-hmm. and we work with HR departments and do uh, continuing legal education classes for you know corporate lawyers, you know, encouraging them not to ask the question and, and what to do instead, mm-hmm. um, which is a whole another body of work I could tell you about. Spend an hour on that, but. Um, uh, yeah, the, it's not mandatory for the private sector. Uh, and the other big victories, not I personally, but our office, yeah. uh, probably the biggest one that's just fresh is the winning of Tyra uh, Patterson's right. uh, uh, freedom from prison. And uh, I encourage everyone, and I'll just, we can provide a link yeah. to the story about Tyra Patterson, a woman that spent 22 years in prison for something she did not do. And we spent my executive director fought. He said it was the hardest case of his life uh, for six years to get her free. Uh, we just got her released on parole. If you mentioned David a couple of times, if people talk a little bit about David, because I feel like he's a guy that maybe people in Cincinnati or in Ohio in general who aren't informed about this work, don't know the yeah. resources and the personalities that um, they're working on yeah. behalf of people here that are kind of amazing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. David Singleton is a, uh, I don't know, a lodestar. He's a he's relentless and fearless and the most laid back guy you're ever going to meet. It's, it's, it's kind of a remarkable person. Somebody who works so insanely hard. Mm. Um, uh, he's still so laid back. Um, so he's a fighter. I mean, he continually encourages us to be fearless. He is hilarious too. Uh, he's an African-American lawyer, educated at Harvard, happened to be there at the same time as someone you might know as a former president. Um, very uh, uh, articulate and passionate about um, race in the criminal justice system. I mean, that's mm-hmm. just something he's he personally took on long ago. He's a former public defender um, and then came to Cincinnati. I think he came in 2002, I want to say. Um, and he's been in leading the Ohio Justice Policy Center ever since. Um, he is, yeah, I mean, I think of him as sort of my partner if there was a, you know, such a thing in nonprofit worlds. We talked about um, the successes. Uh, those don't come without losses. Yeah. Um, 
you know, talk a little bit about those and about, you know, setbacks are part of mm-hmm. what you do. How do you address those both sort of uh, professionally and personally? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, let's see. What's, um, uh, you know, we lose legislation. I, you know, I'm often trying to like persuade legislators to change the law and, bizarre unre- things that you wouldn't think uh, are relevant sometimes can deep six a bill mm. that you think is that everyone likes, even Republicans. We do a really good job of like getting right and left conservative and liberal and all kinds of perspectives generally like in the ballpark of supporting our work. And then sometimes something will come out of left field and someone's cousin doesn't like it. And so it's, you know, it, it's wacky. A legislator's personal predilections yeah. will, will kill things. That's really frustrating. Uh, and we try to marginalize someone who does that, but it, um, <laughs> we're not always successful. So somebody just lose. Um, mm-hmm. That's hard. Does that set you back personally? I mean, do you, <clears throat> on the one hand, I can see you saying, well, that's, you know, losses are, are most of what we get. So yeah. it's, it's par for the course. On the other hand, it's got to take a toll. Yeah. Well, it does. Um, yeah, uh, David's favorite um, reading to like have everyone read when they start at working at OJPC is "Losers, Fools, and Profits." And it's a great law. It's a law review article, which sounds wonky and gross, but it's um, wonderful writing about lawyers who sort of saw their uh, they sort of created a vision for like this is what it would look like to change a statute or even a constitution, um, and to fight for that all through their entire careers and lose every time all the way through and then decades after they lose and after they're dead to have the Supreme court of the United States citing their work and, and adopting their theories uh, to to begin, you know, what eventually became, for example, Brown versus board of right. education or um, things like that. So um, there are lawyers in the example was they use slavery and anti-slavery work. Uh, they use uh, the, the, article used uh, women's suffrage and also talked about um, uh, the Central American stuff in the 80s um, when the U.S. was, you know, basically propping up dictators and creating civil wars. Mm-hmm. Um, lawyers that attacked that using the, the, the courts and lost. Um, that's inspiring for us, I guess. That's kind of, I don't know, how we see our thing. We try to create this great big long picture vision. Sort of a Don Quixote. Yeah, I guess so. You know, you guys are, are not the only people going at the windmills. Yeah, tilting at windmills, except, you know, like, we, the strategy is never irrelevant. I know one of my mm. favorite writers still to this day is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And, uh, and I remember him saying something along the lines of, uh, you know, winning is not morally irrelevant. Like, uh, and, and to this day, black activists, you'll hear him say, it is our duty to fight, it is our duty to win. And I'm, I'm in these rooms where people are leading that chant. Um, and so strategy, you know, like on the one hand, we carry the tension between like, we want to blow up, you know, all four centuries mm-hmm. of the concoction of American whiteness and anti-blackness. Uh, and we want to win this bill, <laughs> you know, yeah. like yeah. Uh, the, that's the, the black activists that I work with all over Ohio, which has been, that has been the biggest gift of my career is to get to work with them. Um, they seem to hold that creative tension constantly. And so I just have to like learn how they hold that tension. That reminds me of a, of a Rilke poem. There's a poem called the man watching and the last stanza of it says, uh, winning does not tempt that man. This is how he grows by being defeated decisively by greater and greater beings. Um, Yeah. 
I think. Definitely. <laughs> maybe. Maybe not. I, I've never known what that I'm going to have to it sit with Rookie for a minute. For a minute. <laughs> Everything you quote Rookie to me, and I'm going to like have to go home for a day and come back to you. Steven, uh, this, this has been great. The last thing that I want to ask you is um, if people want to partner with OJPC, mm-hmm. if they want to support OJPC, mm-hmm. or if they need the services of OJPC, yeah. how do they learn more about you guys? How do they get in touch with you? Well, the, the old faithful, you know, the website and the Facebook, um, the book of faces, uh, Facebook page. It's, oh, um, our website is www.ohiojpc.org. And, uh, similarly, our Facebook page is Facebook slash, uh, O-H-I-O-J-P-C. Um, you can find us there. And so if you're, uh, in the legal profession, any kind of way, paralegal lawyer or something like that, uh, we could definitely use your help. Uh, we're not the kind of, unfortunately we get a lot of volunteers who are like, I want to best pitch in. And I'm like, hey, you're not a lawyer, right? <laughs> you know, I'm a law yeah. firm. Yeah. Um, now with this ballot initiative, however, if you get excited about that, and again, hopefully we can provide a link on the website about the ballot initiative, which is very tangible, very concrete. It's got a lot of thought behind it. It's both modest, but also majorly impactful. Um, we're going to need to collect signatures. So if you if this is like a, an immediate, tangible, I can do something, get out in my community and have a conversation and do something real, this ballot initiative will have tons of opportunity for that. And both I and in, in Cincinnati, my well, across Ohio, there's something called the Ohio Organizing Collaborative. And us together, you can contact us and we'll get you plugged in. Perfect. I'm always interested in what people do and I'm always interested in the stories of how they work, but I'm not always... Um, as humbled and as in awe of what they do as I am consistently about what you do. It's it's great work. I really appreciate you telling us about it and sharing the story and uh, coming on the show. Thank you so much, Stephen. Yeah. Keep, keep doing what you do. All doing. right. Thank you. This episode of the Distiller Podcast was recorded live at Second Sight Spirits, 301 Elm Street in Ludlow, Kentucky. Thanks again to Stephen Johnson Grove for joining us on the show. For more information about the Ohio Justice and Policy Center, as well as the reading lists and other resources Stephen mentioned, visit thedistillerpodcast.com and click on the more info links for this episode. Special thanks again to Karis Wagner, owner and co-founder of Second Sight Spirits for hosting us and for the amazing hot buttered rum. Drop by Second Sight in beautiful Ludlow, Kentucky and see their operation. They offer free tours and of course you can taste and buy I picked up a bottle of their smoked cherry rum. Oh my goodness. The Distiller is produced, recorded, and hosted by me, Brandon Dawson, with co-production and booking from Terry Heist. We're mixed by Justin Golden. Our logo was designed by Scott Ryan. You can find The Distiller on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also download episodes, find links and info, including photos of the guests and locations, and get in touch with us at thedistillerpodcast.com, including to suggest people you think should be on The Distiller to talk about their search for meaningful work, or if you think there's somewhere interesting we could record the show or something interesting we should drink while doing it. It's all at thedistillerpodcast.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.